Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hello, and welcome back to Story Collider's Stories of COVID-19 series. I'm your host, Artistic Director Aaron Barker, and today we're bringing you part two of our episode on love. If you missed part one, we shared a story from Melanie Hamlet about an unexpected pandemic wedding, as well as an interview with psychologist Joanne Davila about how relationships are faring during lockdown. And now we have two more stories on the theme of love for you. And in these stories, we won't be looking at romantic love, but rather platonic love, the love of a daughter for her father and the love of a COVID researcher for his subjects. Our first story is from Misha Gajewski, who's a freelance journalist and senior producer for Story Collider. It was recorded in her home in Toronto. So it's a sunny day in June, and my dad calls me from my driveway to say he's ready to go. And I walk out of my house, and I see him on my driveway, and he's wearing his most stylish blue jeans and a freshly ironed orange dress shirt. And I think, God, only my dad would get dressed up for chemo. So for the last year or so, my dad has been driving into downtown Toronto for his chemo and radiation treatments um, because he was diagnosed with stage three colorectal cancer. And uh, the doctors are putting him through these treatments to hopefully stop the cancer from growing further, but also to shrink the tumor so that when they can finally schedule surgery in the middle of this pandemic, they don't have to take out so much of his colon. And usually I'm not really around when my dad comes downtown for these treatments, but since the pandemic, um, I have a lot of free time and I've not been leaving my house or putting on pants. So this is an excuse to do both those things. And it's also just great to spend time with my dad. And so today's no different. He calls me and I come out and we set off on our walk towards the hospital, the recommended six feet apart. Now, my dad and I have only really like three topics of conversation. So on these walks, we talk about one, when I'm coming over for family dinner. It's usually Sunday, so sometimes we add in what we're going to have for family dinner. Two, uh, how I'm doing for money, which um, might be weird if this was any other 28-year-old, but I'm a freelancer, so there are times where I'm very not okay for money. And three, what I'm working on, which is my dad's sneaky way of asking if I'm okay for money. 
The rest of the time, we mostly just make fun of each other for what we're wearing. He'll say I look like Peter Pan because I'm wearing green leggings. And I'll tell him he looks like a human pylon because he's dressed in head-to-toe orange as per usual. Today, he's just a half pylon, but he's accessorized with an orange backpack. And so as we're walking through the like old university campus, um, and the trees finally have leaves on them, so it's starting to actually look like summer, we're talking about what I'm working on. And I'm telling him about the latest Forbes article I'm writing. And, um, and then instead of transitioning to Sunday dinner or something, I threw a curveball in there and I ask, Hey dad, how's it going? How are you feeling? And he says, the neuropathy is not going away. Oh, and I'm kind of surprised he's telling me this because usually these are the kind of updates I would either get from my mom or in kind of a group text message. And he's like, yeah. I the like pins and needles sensation that I get after chemo, like in my hands and feet, it used to go away after three days, but it's not going away anymore after this last round. And it doesn't hurt or anything, but it's just, it's annoying. And if this was anyone else but my dad, I, I might offer him some advice because I wrote about cancer research for two years, day in and day out at this giant, um, cancer charity in the UK. But it's my dad. He gives me advice. I don't give him advice. So I just say, that sucks. How many more rounds of chemo do you have left? And he's like, two. But I think I think this is going to be the last one. I, I don't want to do it anymore. I think I'm going to tell the doctors I'm, I'm going to stop. And all I say is, okay, but in my head, I'm spiraling. What? You can't stop chemo in the middle of a pandemic when you don't even have a surgery schedule. That's, you can't do that. And like, okay, I know you can theoretically stop treatment at any time, but like you, you have stage three cancer. So you can't just like go against what the doctors say. And like every little bit of treatment helps it. I'm also like floored because my dad doesn't quit things. He's the kind of guy who makes to-do lists on weekends to do no fun tasks. And he's the kind of guy who, for the past, like, 30 years, has gotten up at 5 in the morning every single day to work out like a psychopath. And he's he's the guy, when he has the stomach flu, he still eats an entire spaghetti bolognese dinner. So what's a little pins and needles and nausea? This isn't my dad. He doesn't quit things. And while I'm in this spiral, I... I, I kind of, I failed to realize that we're coming up to the hospital and my dad started to trail behind. And so I look back at him and I'm like, what's up? And he's like, I don't want to go. I'm like, well, duh, no one wants to go to chemo. It's no fun, but you gotta go. And he's looking at the hospital like if he glares at it long enough, it'll disappear. And he's shuffling his feet and he's grabbing the straps of his backpack. He's like, I don't want to go. And he looks scared and he looks tired and he looks like he doesn't want to be alone. And I don't know what to do with this because I've never had to comfort my dad. 
My dad's the one who comforts me. He's the one who would rub my stomach when I didn't feel good. And he's the one who would bribe me with Kit Kats to do no fun activities. And I don't think a Kit Kat's going to cut it in this situation. And everything else I know how to do to comfort people isn't an option right now because I can't give my dad a hug because I don't want to risk giving him COVID on top of cancer. And I can't even go into the hospital and just sit next to him while he gets poison dumped in his body because they're not allowing anyone in but patients. And I don't know what to do. I feel like I'm failing in this one moment. I'm supposed to be there for my dad. And the only thing that like I know would kind of make him feel better as a vodka martini, but I didn't bring a flask or olives on our 2 p.m. walk on a Tuesday. And so I'm at a complete and utter loss. And so all I say is, did you bring your mask? And he pulls his mask out of his pocket and he's like, yeah. And so I'm like, well, do you want me to take a picture of you on your last day of chemo? Because humor's all I got right now. And he says, no, I don't want to remember any of this. And he stomps off petulantly towards the hospital. And as the automatic doors close, I think, yeah, me neither. I wish, I wish I could take away those bad memories from my dad, or at least just make them not so terrible. But I can't. But maybe next time I'll know what to do. That was Misha Gajewski. Misha is a freelance journalist, educator, and senior producer for The Story Collider. Her work has appeared on Vice, Forbes, CTV News, and BBC, among others. And so appreciate Misha sharing that story with us. Before we move on to our final story of love and our final story of this series of COVID-19 stories, I want to remind everyone that we're going to take a bit of a break before we come back to COVID stories. For the next few months, we're going to be airing bonus episodes featuring non-COVID-related stories every couple of weeks. We hope that you'll enjoy hearing stories about sharks and birds and math for a while before we come back to this subject, because we are, of course, still working on our next series of COVID stories. We believe that these stories provide a really invaluable documentation of this time and how real people are experiencing it, as well as being a source of connection and catharsis for all of us right now. So we're continuing to invest our time in these stories. If you're listening to this series thinking that you have a story about how the pandemic has affected you in a big or small way, get in touch. You can send your story pitches to stories at storycliter.org, or you can pitch through the form on our website. We're also going to be looking for stories on other themes in the near future. One of the silver linings of this pandemic is that it has shown us what great stories that we can find outside of the cities where we hold regular shows. So even after we go back to in-person shows, hopefully later in 2021, fingers crossed, everybody, we would still like to continue to find and record stories outside of our live events. So please feel free to continue to pitch us no matter where you are in the world. One of the themes that we have our eye on as we begin work on future series is climate change. So we especially welcome your pitches on that theme as well. Now, without any further ado, we'll close this series with our very last story from researcher Yusuf Saklali. I don't think I could think of a more beautiful and appropriate story for us to end on. 
The story was recorded in Yusuf's home in Decatur, Georgia. I was going about my day when my boss called for a huge meeting that afternoon. I head in, and that's when she announces that we will be doing a randomized controlled trial for COVID-19. COVID had just started rampaging all across the globe. And what this meant is that we will be trying a new medication called remdesivir to try and treat COVID. I was extremely excited. I had a smile from ear to ear, and I immediately raised my hand to volunteer to be part of this effort. You see, I'm a medical graduate from Lebanon, and I had moved to the U.S. to pursue my passion for infectious disease. And Lebanon, unfortunately, is crumbling. I kept thinking to myself, how lucky is this kid 6,000 miles away from home in this place at this time doing infectious disease research during a pandemic? I was elated. Clinical trials are usually slow and tedious. We usually take our time to learn the protocol, its ins and outs, the inclusion and exclusion criteria. This was not going to be the case this time. We ran through the chart immediately, prepared the, read the protocol, and reviewed the inclusion-exclusion criteria. We headed to the hospital the very next day. COVID was still a new disease then, and we didn't know much about it. The hospital didn't have many COVID patients. The COVID unit felt like Batman's lair. It was underground, it had multiple doors that needed badge access, It had the negative pressure ventilation and cameras everywhere. I still remember my doctor getting into his PPE, which was a hazmat suit. He looked like an astronaut. I still remember standing outside the room as he entered into to talk to the first patient. I was standing there peeking through a small glass window. I was reviewing the inclusion and exclusion criteria in my head. I had this mixed feeling of excitement and anxiety. I was super excited, but I didn't want to be the person who messes up the research in the time of a pandemic. My role as a research coordinator was to make sure that everything runs smoothly. I had to make sure that we enrolled the right people, that the data is great, and that we got all the samples. One of my roles as well is to get the medications to the patients every day. I would head in, medication bags in hand, and go around the different hospital floors. However, unlike any other research study, I wasn't allowed to enter the room to to give the medication. This is because they wanted to limit the number of people who are exposed to COVID. What this implied is that I will not meet the patients in my very own study. Instead, I would get a tiny glimpse of them as the door is being closed shut, or I would get a small peek through, through a small window at the door. We would always smile at each other and I would wave at them. It was hard to remember all the individual patients without actually being able to interact with them. Instead, I would put labels for them in my head. Mrs. Smith had long red hair. Mr. Perez had big brown eyebrows. Miss Williams was a 70-year-old African-American woman with a big smile and she would always wave at me vigorously. This was just the start of the trial, and things started getting busy. In the first week, I worked for seven days. Second week, seven days. Third week, six days. 
we were working very hard to enroll as many people as we can. We became extremely immersed in our job. I would head in at 7 a.m. and come back home at 7 p.m. I took selfies in the empty hallways like that looked like a deserted no man's land. Forgetting to have breakfast and lunch, which would usually never happen to me, became a daily thing. Even though I would sometimes reward myself with a burger at the end of my day, I had still lost 8 pounds in 3 weeks. I work with very dedicated people. They're all extremely compassionate. If my doctor had one question for the patient, he would head in and talk to them for an hour. I would always make fun of him because he would come out of the room drenching in sweat from all of his PPE. The jokes and the camaraderie kept me going, but I couldn't see my friends or family. I had a saying that I kept telling them, the pandemic doesn't stop, so neither can we. Part of the difficulty of working at a hospital during a pandemic is not just that I couldn't see my friends, but also that my friends are afraid of seeing me as I may be a vector of disease. It was like we were perpetually playing a game of hot potato, and that potato was me. I hadn't seen anyone in months, and I missed the small things, like being able to hug my friends. There's that experiment where a scientist separates the rhesus monkeys from their mothers to see the effect of lack of affection. I felt like I could finally relate to that monkey. I remember going into the ICU one day to deliver the medication, and I see Miss Williams lying unconscious on her bed. She had a breathing tube in her mouth, multiple bags of medications around her, and she was under heavy sedation. I just froze there, standing in the ICU, as the doctors and nurses were jumping around. I started understanding the impact of this disease. You see, COVID on the news is a series of numbers, a case fatality rate, an infection rate. Even in my head, I really wanted to find a cure for this disease. But patients were still patient IDs and charts and data. Often in research, when a patient is incapacitated, we have to call their legally authorized representative or their family member to ask for permission for them to be part of our research. Often I would call a patient's spouse, only to find out that they had passed away due to COVID. In the hospital, I had a mother and son sick in adjacent rooms. I had siblings in the same hospital. I had a patient skip her follow-up visit to attend her father's funeral. Family members were not allowed in the hospital. I still remember a compassionate nurse going into the patient's room to FaceTime their family in their last moments. A month later, I went in to conduct a follow-up visit with Miss Williams. Thankfully, she had made it and was energetic as ever. We both almost screamed from joy when we saw each other. We didn't hug, obviously, but we did hold hands through our gloves. It was like meeting someone I had known for a long time. COVID had created barriers, like walls and masks and windows, and despite all of that, we still managed to build connections with one another. She told me how happy she was to be part of the study and thanked us for taking care of her. Moments like this 
cold hands held in latex gloves are what make it all worth it. Thank you. That was Yusuf Sekwali. Yusuf is a researcher in infectious disease at Emory University's Hope Clinic. StoryClider is so grateful to Misha and Yusuf for sharing their stories. StoryClider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast series was produced by me, Aaron Barker, with assistance from StoryClider's Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg and Senior Podcast Editor Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to StoryClider's board, our operations manager, Lindsay Cooper, and our interim executive director, Leslie Griesbach-Schultz, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's installment were produced by Kayla Glenn and Catherine J. Wu, respectively. The theme music is by Eva Gertz of the Fulton Street Music Group. We will see you in a couple of weeks with our next bonus episode. Until then, this is Story Collider signing off. Stay safe. Wash your hands, wear a mask, love each other. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.